1: Well, good morning, gang. Let's grab our cup of coffee, our notebook, and our pencil. It's Saturday morning here on WRWH, and that means we have an hour here to talk about all things gardening. As a matter of fact, today is the last Saturday of this month, the month of February, and that means... We're answering your questions So all month long We've reminded you That uh, you can contact The show New Southern Garden On the web NewSouthernGarden.com That's our web page And you can leave A question there Doesn't necessarily Let you leave pictures But if you have a picture Which someone did send uh, This month Through Facebook Or Instagram You just tag us in it Send it to us In a message Or whatever However you want to do that, we like to gather these questions and answer the ones that are most timely and the ones we have most time for. Of course, we do like to send you a a message in summary of the answer. And so, we're getting to that part of the year where, you know, I was doing the math and when this month is over on Monday, we will be one-sixth of the way finished with the year. We've got five more sixths to go. And so we've got spring around the corner, folks. I mean, you know, we gotta be careful because the weather, the, uh, the conditions we have this time of year are very sketchy. They're very sketchy. What I mean is some days we may be nice and warm, high 60s, low 70s, and it may be sunny and it may feel like spring. And you may wanna go out to your local garden center or come to Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week, and you may want to buy tomato plants, but folks, we're not even finished with February. Don't let this weather fool you. Make all of your plans. Make all of your preparations. As a matter of fact, as far as tomatoes go, this weekend would be a great weekend to start seeding some in a tray or in little pots, keeping them in a sunny window, starting your plants indoors, because what we're looking at is we need about oh, four to six weeks of young plant growth before we put them out into the landscape. And so if you want to start something indoors, well, we've got just about uh, six weeks, give or take, the entire month of March, and then two, mo- two weeks into April before we get to our last, our average last frost date. Now, of course, in our zone, that's somewhere around April 15th. And so that happens to be Easter weekend. Uh, But if you wanted to start seeding some things out, you could do that now. Hopefully, if you're going to do it, you've already purchased your seeds, went through all those catalogs. Um, If you're slow to the game and you haven't purchased your seeds or haven't looked through those catalogs, well, uh, Lanier Nursery and Gardens, we just received uh, our... uh, our stash, if you will, our stash of seeds from Livingston Seed Company, they do not sell to box stores. They sell strictly to uh, local, independent uh, nurseries, garden centers, hardware stores, I assume. They'd probably sell to anybody, but they you can't be a big company. That's what I like about the Livingston Seed Company. Uh, so you can come check out Livingston Seeds, of course, at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But today, it's all about you and your questions and your garden. So let's just go right ahead and jump into the mailbag, jump into the mailbox, if you will, or the inbox on the internet, and answer some of your questions. The first one today comes from Jeremy, and he sent this to us over Facebook which, of course, I mentioned is a great way to send us pictures. Um, But Jeremy says, I'm growing a veggie garden from seeds for the very first time ever. Uh, Any tips to making my journey simpler? Simpler. Well, Jeremy, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do, a lot of things you can find online, but I did uh, come up with a short list of things that I found to be helpful and useful uh, when you're getting into seeds. You know, seeds, when you're planting a vegetable garden can be large, and seeds can be very small. If you think about lettuce seed, it's very tiny. If you think about uh, squash seeds, squash seeds, pumpkin seeds, uh, cucumbers, they're fairly large. And then, of course, there's things in between, like tomatoes and peppers. And and so, you know, when you're dealing with seeds, you're dealing with different shapes and sizes. And so I've got a couple of tips on sowing them. uh, If you're going to be planting directly into the um, soil, I've got a cool tip that you can do yourself at home. But first, I want to start talking about if you're starting your seeds indoors, Jeremy. If you're going to start tomatoes, uh, peppers, eggplants, those are things that I would start indoors. I would leave all of the cucurbits. All of the cucurbits, that would include the cucumbers, the squashes, the zucchinis, the pumpkins, um, any kind of gourd, if you will, or watermelon, uh, any kind of melon. All of those are in a particular group we call cucurbits. And they seem to respond well because we, uh, in the past, I have sown cucurbit seeds indoors and they germinate, they grow. But when they're planted, transplanted into the garden, they seem to lag. And so one year, I planted some uh, indoors, put them in the ground, and the same day I put those transplants in the ground, I also sowed seed in the ground. Okay, so you would imagine that the seed that was sown on the same day as a transplant that the seed plants would become slower but I actually found that they became more established they were able to get their root system into the soil very quickly and essentially outperform the ones that I started indoors they don't need a very they don't have a long germination time so they don't need extra weeks to germinate they're really germinating in seven to ten days and so I think that if you're going to select seeds to grow indoors to start start with the things that have a long germination period of Uh, And particularly, maybe a long days to harvest. Now, germination, of course, is the amount of time or the germination period would be the amount of time that it's planted and uh, actually emerges from the ground. So for tomatoes, it could be 21 days For peppers, 21 days. They like it hot. And so it's beneficial because they have a long germination period to start those kinds of plants indoors. Um, Now, the days to harvest, of course, would be the days, a number of days from the day you planted the seed until the day you pick the first fruits off of the plant, whether it's tomato fruits or whether it's uh, squash fruits. And tomatoes have a longer Well, and peppers, they have a longer days to harvest period than most of these cucurbits. Cucurbits generally grow like a weed. And so um, if you're going to start some of these indoors, it's very important, especially if you have multiple varieties of tomatoes or multiple varieties of peppers. It surely would be inconvenient, you know, or uh, kind of a bummer to have hot peppers peppers and sweet peppers and get them mixed up now of course you'll probably be able to tell the difference when they're planted or rather when you're uh, picking them uh, but to keep things organized and straight um, you can make your own plant stakes or I should say um, um, tags to identify all you need is some trash That's right. All you need is to save some yogurt cans, the plastic yogurt cans, um, maybe cottage cheese, any of those plastic, white plastic uh, containers that some of your groceries comes out of. Save those and then cut strips along the side, maybe about an inch wide or half an inch wide and cut them so that they do look like little tags. And you can ride on those, and you can keep them in your pots while you're organizing, keeping your plants well organized, so that before you uh, plant them in the ground, you know which plant you are dealing with. So just get some trash, clean it out really good, maybe clean it with some uh, d- detergent, and let them dry, cut them into strips, and then you can write directly on those labels. No reason to go buy anything. Of course, in the past, uh, to be on the cheap, I have gone and purchased um, uh, tongue depressors or popsicle sticks, I guess it is. Uh, the wider, the better. Those are pretty cheap. But again, you have probably have some of these plastic yogurt containers hanging around somewhere. Now... Let's talk about, uh, Jeremy, if you're going to plant directly into the ground, like I said, those cucurbits, um, uh, some corn. I would never really plant corn in containers. I would plant it directly in the soil. Beans, they germinate quickly. Um, I would plant all of these things directly in the ground. There is a nice little trick that you can do create in your garage to help you plant seeds into the soil and that would be taking some nails or screws and a thin strip of board maybe make it four feet wide or however long your beds are and nail uh, nail the hammer these nails into the board at appropriate spacing so for instance say you want to plant uh, plants two inches apart or six inches apart well space these nails in the board Along the length of it, uh, between two, six inches, whatever your spacing is. And then you can take this, these nails that are attached to the board, press them into the earth, and you've got your seed holes ready to go. Now, of course, most seed don't have to go very deep, so you don't need very long nails. Probably short nails would be ideal. But you can work those nails into the soil, wiggle it a bit to open the soil, and drop your seeds in. And boom, you've got evenly spaced plants And you've made your tool in your garage. Of course, you can buy planters online or maybe some hardware stores or garden centers. uh, But seed planters can start uh, even the cheap ones, maybe a little over $100. But you can use nails and boards to do this. Of course, it takes a little back effort because you've got to do some bending. But that's an easy way to plant things in the ground without miss uh, spacing them. You get perfect spacing every time. Now, what about watering? Of course, watering is a very important thing, not necessarily uh, at the beginning of spring, but as we go into, as we go into summer. And there's a couple of things that I want to uh, mention that may be beneficial. Now, Jeremy, when you first sow your seed, you know that you've got to keep the seed moist, not wet, but the soil needs to be moist and the seed is not able to dry out if your seeds dry out uh, you may lose viability and of course it slows down stops maybe prevents the germination process once you've planted your seed you know the soil temperature is right you know the air temperature is right be sure that you keep the moisture in the soil don't let those young seeds dry out because as they germinate they're going to need a lot of water but before you even plant your seeds you need to start thinking about how you're going to water them throughout the summer and in the south at least in our state i say that irrigation is insurance you may not need to turn on the spigot but if in the case we go through a drought and things get really dry here in northeast georgia Well, we can turn the water on and water our garden without losing things. So be thinking of how you might need to water if those situations arise. Ideally, we wouldn't have to add extra water than what uh, the sky gives us, but we don't always get rainfall. So... Soaker hoses are a great way to water the vegetable garden. And the reason I like soaker hoses or some kind of drip irrigation system would be uh, because it doesn't sprinkle the leaves of the plants. The vegetable garden is one of those areas where fungus and bacterias uh, can be a problem with almost any crop we have. And keeping their leaves dry, keeping their leaves free of extra moisture, is going to help them uh, prevent coming along with some kind of fungus or bacteria. Remember in the south we have a lot of humidity we have a lot of heat and if we're adding extra moisture well that is the perfect conditions for bacteria to grow so well and fungus for that matter so soaker hoses but place them early place them the same day that you plant your seeds if you wait a few weeks after you've planted your seeds then you're trying to move these hoses around and potentially damaging your young seedlings so Plant the irrigation system on the same day you sow your seeds. Now, if you don't want to go out and purchase a bunch of hoses or some kind of irrigation system for your landscape, or, for that matter, uh, for the vegetable garden, I should say, but if if you want to go back to the trash bin or the recycling bin and pull out all of your empty milk jugs, make sure they're clean, make sure there's no soured residue milk in there, clean it out, use a detergent, use some Clorox, something, uh, clean these jugs, then... Puncture holes, just a few holes in the sides of the uh, iri- uh, inside of the milk jug, and then literally bury them beside your plants. Bury them where you anticipate your plants to grow, leaving just a top couple of inches above the soil. Um, and when you need to water, you can fill those jugs. And it slowly leaches into the soil, and of course, it's putting the water where the plant needs it. That's the key with watering putting the water around the root system. So, go to the trash container, go to the recycling bin, and get some of these seed projects started this year. More of your questions when we get back. Well gang, today is Q&A week here on New Southern Garden, and that means we're answering your questions that you've sent to us over this past month. I know we are getting ever close and ever closer to spring, and so the questions are starting to roll in. I anticipate as we get into March there may be more than we can handle, so y'all keep them coming. Of course, check us out online at NewSouthernGarden.com and Facebook and Instagram. It looks like Looking at my list of questions for today, we're going to be hopping around the vegetable garden and the ornamental garden uh, because we just talked or answered a question from Jeremy, who sent us a question via Facebook, and it was all about growing vegetables. Now, Katie here in North Georgia, she has a question about camellias. Katie says, I have a large, very large, she accentuates that, very large camellia that's growing over the driveway. Can I prune it safely to reduce its size? Well, Katie, I know exactly what you're dealing with, and I've seen this happen over and over in landscapes. I have visited many hundreds of landscapes in the North Georgia area, and there's always... A camellia in maybe the wrong place. And what I mean is, you know, when you first plant a camellia or you go to the garden center, go to your local plant nursery, and you find these cute little guys in three gallon containers, maybe even smaller. They're cute. They're cuddly. They're, they're just like puppies. And then, of course, you find that as the years progress, camellias can become quite monstrous. And that's exactly what you're dealing with. I've seen it all the time where people put a camellia on the side of the house. Most of the time it's planted too close to the house because, again, when you first plant it, it's cute. It's small. But they do get quite large. And so to answer your question in short, Katie, yes, you can safely reduce the size of the camellia. It's all about timing. And we are at a good time of year, this uh, late winter Early spring would be the ideal time to sort of rejuvenate your camellia. It's very old. It's got old woody stems. It's probably been there for a long time since you tell me it's very, very large. And so when we want to trim back a plant aggressively, when we want to trim back a shrub, uh, in this case, a large shrub, when we want to trim back something aggressively, we've got to make sure we do it at the right time. Late winter, early spring is the right time, and here's why. When a plant is coming out of winter dormancy, because right now plants are sort of sleeping. You know, they've prepared in summer and fall to go into the winter dormant period. But when they're coming out of winter dormancy this time of year or really happening in a few weeks from now, what's going to happen to the plant is it's going to send a lot of nutrition and uh, energy reserves, if you will, from the root system, and it's going to push a lot of growth out of the tops of the plant. It's going to push a lot of growth out of the stems and leaves. It's going to create new branches. It's going to create new leaves, new stems, all of the above. And so you can benefit or bank, you can bank on that fact by trimming the plant back now, or maybe in a couple of weeks. You don't have to rush to it. But as long as you do it sometime, maybe uh, around April, uh, do, trim it now. And then when it, tr- when it does its natural thing of springing out new growth, it'll realize that it uh, needs to send out quite a bit. <laughs> and so you'll see new branches along any woody parts of the plant. You'll see new stems along those older branches, and you may have to thin some of those out because you might find that where one branch was, well, three, four, five may now exist. And so we do call this rejuvenation pruning, and it's strictly only performed this time of year because if we do it through summer there is much less growth or rather much less regrowth from a hard pruning so if you have any large shrub uh, that would be excluding coniferous shrubs now coniferous shrubs are those you know cypress false cypress there's cryptomeria and arborvitae they can't handle this kind of pruning because what i'm about to say is You're going to really be able to cut your plant back. You can cut this plant back at the main stem, very low to the ground, if you'd like. You can't do that with the cypress and the false cypress and all those things, but you can do it with camellia. So, trim it back uh, below the point that you want it to stay at. Trim it back below that point because it will regrow up to your height, so maybe go down a foot or two feet below where you want it to be because it will really push out a lot of growth uh, this spring and then continue to grow in small amounts over summer. And by, well, by this time next year, you probably won't even be able to tell that that camellia was Disastrously trimmed, or I shouldn't say disaster, uh, aggressively trimmed. There should be no disaster. Uh, Katie, as well as trimming back, when you do this kind of trimming, the rejuvenation, cutting things back very hard. We have to realize we are reducing their energy reserves and their nutrition is being removed. When we cut away stems, cut away leaves, we're removing nutrition. So it's a good idea to use a slow-release fertilizer uh, in early part of spring. As soon as you start seeing some new buds growing, you can fertilize the plant to encourage it to put out as much as it needs because it needs some extra. Anytime we take away from a plant, we need to be willing to put it back into the plant. And so a slow-release fertilizer... Of course, at Lanier Nursery and Gardens and Flowery Branch, where you can find me throughout the week, we have just what you need because we use a a great product on our plants that will work in your situation. So, uh, Katie, go ahead and trim back your camellia. You don't have to rush to it, but try to do it uh, before the middle of April. You want to bank on that flush of growth because you're cutting back so much, and of course, you want to feed it. You want to feed it after you've done those activities. So... Let's see. All right, still in the ornamental garden. We do appreciate Katie's question. And Mac, Mac is in Flowery Branch, Georgia, and says that I have uh, planted hellebores a couple of seasons ago, and now I think I have hellebore babies. See the picture attached? There's a beautiful picture of hellebores. Uh, If these are hellebores, can I move them to other parts of the garden? Okay, so Mac, you do have hellebores, and in your photo I see these are hellebore seedlings. They're very cute. Um, uh, The first leaves that a hellebore germinates are not really uh, distinct, but the second, the true set of leaves, we should say, look much like a hellebore. So you have a mixture, because I can tell that even the youngest seedlings without a set of true leaves are hellebores. So you've got a good collection of hellebores here, and to answer your question in short, can you move them to other parts of the garden? Absolutely. You can move them this weekend if you'd like. You need to probably move them the sooner the better, uh, because you want them to regrow a strong root system after you damage it from digging them out and you want that to happen as soon as possible because if these young babies can go into the spring and the summer months uh, with a strong root system they will more likely be living and not struggling um, so let me add some notes here uh, about hellebores because we've talked about hellebores in the past but I, I want to sort of let you know what Mac and Flyer Branch is seen Uh, what Max's dealing with is she's bought these hellebores and has uh the the seeds have sprinkled themselves upon the earth and young babies pop up so hellebore is sort of a uh, herbaceous ground cover but it's evergreen so they look good all year they have big hand-shaped or palm-shaped leaves And then, of course, they bloom when nothing else is blooming. They're blooming right now, and they've started several weeks ago, and some could continue to bloom uh, several weeks from now. But the reality is, is that uh, hellebore is the plant that keeps on giving. It's like a gift that keeps on giving. You have one of them, and they reseed themselves. So that's how they make a great ground cover. They get these dense populations, these dense communities of hellebores. Uh, They'll start to compete with each other, and so that's why, Mac, it's important to be sure to uh, transplant some of these to other areas or give them away to friends. Now, the other beautiful thing about hellebores in particular is that the new babies you have there, Mac, may not look just like the mother. No, because hellebores, they hybridize with each other. They cross with each other. They do get promiscuous with each other. They trade genes and they mix up their genes. So if you have a light-colored hellebore and a dark purple uh, or red-colored hellebore and they cross with each other, you may get some strange new combination. In my opinion... um, it's important not to let any hellebore go to waste. (laughs) And the reason is, of course, because you never know what new variety you may unleash in your garden. You never know what new type of hellebore you may see in your landscape. So save your hellebores, move them when they're young, maybe have at least one set of true leaves that look like the mother plant's leaves, and Put them in a nice shady or morning sun condition and they'll continue to grow and spread for years to come. Well, just like the hellebores, we got more questions to give after this break. Hang on
0: tight. Stories I-
1: Well, gang, I feel like we're rocking and rolling this morning with getting your questions answered here on New Southern Garden. Of course, we like to dedicate the last Saturday of the month uh, to answer your questions. And you have sent us questions all month. We appreciate those who have. We hope we can get to all of them. But, of course, uh, we would like to send you a personal answer as well. So, if you have a question this this season as we approach spring, be sure to check out NewSouthernGarden.com on the Internet where you can find every episode of our program ever. And you can also leave questions. So, again, that's online at NewSouthernGarden.com. But... You can visit us on Facebook and Instagram. Be sure to like us, follow us, whatever they call us these days. Make us your friend, and we can keep in touch that way. You can send us questions, send us videos that are, uh, you know, of your landscape. If you've got major issues and you need to talk about it on a video and show us, we'd love to see it. Uh, Before the break, though, we were talking about hellebores, and Mac is in Flowery Branch, uh, she has hellebores planted and she notices that there are probably babies around. She sent us a picture. There indeed are hellebore babies uh, growing seedlings. Hellebores are relatively easy to grow from seed. They will take quite some time to get to blooming age. It may take two to three, at least two to three years for that seedling to be strong enough, to be mature enough to start producing flowers. But of course, when they do start producing flowers, they are just gorgeous and they're blooming when nothing else is. They're blooming right now. So they're blooming along with Camellia and Winter Daphne, but there's only a handful of plants that bloom over winter and Hellebore is one of those. So if you don't have Hellebores, but maybe you have a fairly shady site, uh, and you need something green there all year? Well, hellebores, they like that condition. They keep their leaves all year. And like we've already told Mac, they give you many more plants. So it is the plant that keeps on giving, and you can spread them around your landscape. Now remember, these seedlings are not going to look just like their mother. No, because they like to hybridize and cross amongst themselves, you may have some brand new colors, some brand new, new varieties, if you will. Some new combinations, maybe some speckled, leaf, uh, speckled petals. Oh, they can be gorgeous. One of my favorite plants. And they're deer resistant too. Deer do not like hellebore. They're not tasty. If, if anybody ate enough hellebore leaves, they would get quite a stomach ache. And so uh, the deer stay away from them. It's wonderful. With that being said, hellebore looks great with other plants like hostas and ferns. As a matter of fact, uh, hostas and ferns, they go so well with the uh, hellebores that you can create your own little woodland garden right outside the porch or wherever you have a shady site. Uh, Hellebores, though, can handle a good bit of sun, but I would prefer for them to be growing in morning sun. I mean, if you had a site that got six hours of morning sun, but then afternoon shade, hellebores would not only grow well, but they would bloom the best they possibly could. Hellebores can handle quite a bit of sun, like I said, but if they get too intense, their leaves start to turn black. It doesn't cause a problem for the plant, uh, but it's just its response to that heat and that extra intense light. And so those kinds of plants planted in that condition will bloom well, but they may need extra maintenance to be looking great all the time. So if you don't have hellebores, if you don't know what they look like, search for them online, Google them something, uh, or just come check out your local plant nursery. We've got plenty of hellebores we're growing at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. So you can find me and the hellebores uh, at the nursery. Well, let's continue answering some more questions. Sam, uh, not sure where Sam is from, but Sam says, uh, I'm hoping to start my own compost this year. What's the basic info I need to get started? Well, Sam, I'm glad that you brought this question up because I think we have talked about compost in the past on some previous episodes, so you can find more information on those at our website, newsoutherngarden.com. But I'm glad you brought up compost because I think that's a very important topic. You know, composting is a great way to recycle. And I don't mean necessarily like, you know, we're recycling banana peels. We're not recycling... Um, tomato trimmings or lettuce trimmings or whatever. We are recycling those things, uh, but what we're really recycling are plant nutrients. You see, in today's modern world, with conventional agriculture, conventional fertilizers, we go and purchase nutrition in a bag that has been maybe sucked out of the atmosphere, as they do with nitrogen. It may have been mined out of the ground, like phosphorus and potassium, but there are... There are copious amounts of nutrition in these banana pills, in these uh, coffee grounds, in these eggshells, in these uh, trimmings from our, our salads and whatnot. So there are plenty of nutrition in these things. And when we have them processed in that biological process of decomposition, we call it composting. But when we go through that process, we unleash we unleash these nutrients, or the, these nutrients, I should say. We unleash these nutrients that then can be used by a plant. Now, obviously, a plant is not going to consume a banana, but a plant can consume a decomposed and biologically processed banana peel. Okay, you and I uh, consume nutrition in a different way than plants do. And so with that in mind, I think that it's a perfect time to think about saving things, you know, in this world we live in. The gas prices are high, cash is low. <laughs> and so recycling whatever we can is, is a great idea. So composting, there are some, well, I don't have a, enough time to give you the whole breakdown, but I'll give you the basics like you're asking for, the basics of understanding what a good compost is, what it's made from, and how it works. Um, let me start off with, the bin do you need a compost bin you know you see plenty of people who build these elaborate structures or maybe they go online or to the store and they purchase a composting bin there's plenty of those bins uh, that are on a roller and it's like a lottery ball machine you know you just roll roll a bingo machine Uh, those rollers you don't need you don't necessarily need all of these things some of those may work for you Uh, they may be more appropriate but you don't have to have a bin you see, these these materials, uh, the leaf litter, the uh, kitchen scraps, all of these things, they're going to break down naturally as long as you give them a little encouragement. And you can speed that up by encouraging them as well. But you don't have to have a bin. You can start your compost in a pile. It's no problem. You can pile it up, mound it up. Now, if you're in a neighborhood where they wouldn't allow a mound of Uh, a mound of uh, thrown out vegetables or whatnot, then you may want to consider a bin or some kind of container. One of the most simplest bins to make is out of pallets. If you can come up with three pallets, maybe go to one of the warehouses in town or somewhere. Maybe you know somebody who is in the business and uh, uh, that uses pallets. Find three pallets and and sort of make a bin out of those with a back and two sides you can leave the front open because the front is going to be where you do all your work where you do your turning and where you also harvest your compost to go place on the earth so a three-sided structure like a box but one end is open is perfect for a composting bin and because you if you use pallets you know pallets have wood slats that are spaced out and so that's two beneficial things Things. The spaces allow oxygen and air to get into the pallet or in into the bin, but also the slats help to hold the bin, uh, the materials in the bin in one place, so they're not spilling out. So that's one of the most simple and basics you can find, and usually you can probably find some pallets pretty cheap or free uh, in some, some, some uh, warehouses. Now, for the materials themselves, for what you throw in there, what do you need in there? Well, there's five Main requirements to get a compost bin going and get it started, get it heated up quick, and that would be you need brown litter, and brown litter would be things like maybe wood chips, um, bark, uh, anything that is woody, all right? You need green litter. Green litter would be anything that is, is herbaceous. So foliage or leaves, if you have a ton of oak trees, ton of maple trees, and you blow the leaves in the fall, those can be used as green litter in your compost uh, container. Now, the other three are not necessarily something you are going to have to add, but you might. That would be air moisture and light and you don't have to have light that fifth one light is not necessarily a requirement but light and the sun will help speed things up we're really not talking about artificial light we're talking about uh energy and sunlight okay from the sun uh the sun does help with heating this pile a bit uh but we're going to talk in a minute about how a compost pile uh, can, how a compost pile actually warms up so brown litter green litter air moisture and I like to throw in sunlight because it really is beneficial um, The brown litter is your carbon, okay? Carbon is a very uh, rigid, tough structure uh, or helps to build those rigid, tough structures like wood and bark and anything brown. Green litter is your nitrogen, okay? Nitrogen is the nutrition uh, that we find plenty dosage or, or concentrations in leaves, uh, lettuce, uh, even those peels we were talking about, any kind of trimmings like that, that is all considered green litter. And a compost bin is essentially a balance of carbon and nitrogen. You want to make sure that you have enough nitrogen to help break down the carbon and here's how it works okay when you're working a compost bin or pile you are actually cultivating bacteria and fungus those are the creatures that are decomposing all the materials you throw into your compost bin it's a great process that happens naturally in nature. Every time the leaves fall in the fall, they drop to the ground and they slowly decompose with fungus and bacteria. And of course, sometimes we can see the fungus. We can see the little hyphae, the little strings, the little white strings running underneath the wood, leaves in the woods. So all of these things, what we're trying to do is cultivate them. So the fungus and the bacteria, these decomposers, if you will, the decomposers are uh, consuming um, the brown litter and, and the green litter, they're using the nitrogen in the green litter to break down the carbon in the brown litter. You see? So if they run out of food source or energy source of, car- of nitrogen, then your compost bin won't go as fast as you hope it to. It won't break down as fast as you hope. So we've got to make sure that we're feeding those bacteria and fungus, which of course we can't really see with our naked eye, but they're there. We are trying to feed them high amounts of nitrogen to to break down the carbon in the woody structures, okay? So with that in mind, you are always, Sam, you're always going to be balancing the amount of brown litter from the amount of green litter, If you have too much brown, your pile won't decompose as quickly. If you have not enough brown, well, you won't have much of compost, okay? So be sure that you're saving those green scraps, whether it's leaves from trees, whether it's uh, trimmings from the kitchen, scraps from the kitchen, whatever it is. Make sure you're saving those because you're going to need probably copious amounts of that depending on how large your pile is. Now, air and moisture, they come into play in a different way, again, It's nothing really to do with the material that we put in there. What we're trying to do, we're not cultivating compost. We're cultivating decomposers, right? We're cultivating the bacteria. We're cultivating the fungus. So we've got to make sure that the fungus and bacteria have moisture because they're life. Uh, All living creatures need moisture. They also they also need oxygen. If you don't give them oxygen, you will get into this condition we call an anaerobic process. Anaerobic means without oxygen. It becomes stenchy, stinky, and it will smell and your neighbors will complain. So we've got to make sure we're balancing air and moisture. And of course, the sunlight is important. It helps to warm this pile up. But again, it's not necessarily the sunlight that's warming this pile up. Uh, I guess when we get back from this break, I'll tell you why the center of a compost pile is so hot and why the hotter it is really the better and the faster it's breaking down. So all of that when we get back from this quick break, hang on tight now I'm lost in the delta. In- Well, gang, I had a feeling that today's show would go by quickly because you've given us some great things to talk about. You've sent us your questions, and we're giving you the answers. Of course, it's just my take on it, but uh, I do like to give people some good advice when possible, and we're glad that you're asking for it. So if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer next month, be sure to send it to us at NewSouthernGarden.com and on Facebook and Instagram. Well, I've got to get into some more discussion because we don't have much time. So, with all that being said, what we were talking about before the break, We were talking about compost and Sam uh, sent us this question. He's getting into compost for the first time. He wants to know the basics. So we started by saying, do we need a bin, a compost bin or not? No, not necessarily. This compost will break down and do its job if it's in a bin or not. But a bin does help to define spaces. A bin helps to keep things in place. And with a bin, you might be able to pack in more compost, Uh, but you can get started on just bare soil, bare earth. So the five important things we need, of course, is brown litter, which is high in carbon. We need green litter, which is high in nitrogen. We need air. We need moisture. And I like to throw in, we need some sunlight. Sunlight does help to generate heat. But what we were talking about is that bacteria and fungus are what we're cultivating. It's what we're growing when we're growing compost uh, or making compost, rather. Now, these fungus and bacterias, they're, they're not generally bad creatures, okay? Uh, there are bad fungus that get on living growth. There are bad bacteria that get on living growth and destroy our gardens, right? But there are fungus and bacteria Just like in our gut, right? Just like in our stomach, we have bacteria that are good working and digesting food. Well, the same for a compost bin. Generally speaking, the bacteria and the fungus that are in a compost bin are very beneficial. And they are consuming brown litter and green litter, particularly using the nitrogen in the green litter as a food source, as a source of energy to help break down the carbon in those brown materials like wood chips, uh, bark, sticks twigs etc so it's always a balance between the right amount of green litter the right amount of brown litter if you notice that your compost bin is or your compost pile rather is not moving quickly it's not breaking down quickly then it's very important to add more of that green litter because all of the nitrogen may have been consumed and the bacteria cannot continue to break down uh, the brown litter so That is one of the critical things to keep an eye out for, Sam, is to make sure you're balancing green and brown. Um, Green's got to be there in order for brown to be broken down. Now, the air and moisture we just briefly touched on, and I'd like to say, again, that balancing the amount of air and the amount of moisture in your pile is critical. You still want your materials in the pile to be moist, but you don't want them to be wet. You see, uh, where, where... Water is not, air will be. Okay, so if your pile is very moist, very wet, then you will have very little air. And oxygen is what the bacteria and the fungus need in order to produce a more healthy compost. Uh, We'll put it that way, because if we have a saturated compost pile, then that material will become anaerobic. Uh, And anaerobic, like I said before the break, is a fancy word for without oxygen. Anytime we have a situation where there is little oxygen, different bacteria, different fungus may come into play, and those tend to be very stinky, they smell terrible, uh, which is sort of like, you know, part of the whole septic system thing, right? Septic system's full of water. It's very anaerobic, and we know sewage does not smell great. So you don't want your compost to start smelling like sewage. Anaerobic processes are much slower than aerobic processes. Aerobic processes are ones that do contain oxygen. So balancing moisture and air is important. You may not ever have to water your compost pile but in the summer if it seems like it's drying out well the bacteria the fungus will not reside in those wet areas so uh, sorry in those dry areas so you may need to sprinkle water on in the summer but in the winter time we get enough rain we don't have as high of temperature so there's less evaporation you probably won't have to water your contain your uh, compost bin but you might need to add some extra moisture in the summer now The last point that I talked about or mentioned was sunlight. Sunlight just helps to uh, give you a general warm compost. Letting it sort of bake in the sun in the day is good because the more heat that's generated uh, to some point, there is a uh, melting point, if you will. But see, bacteria and fungus, they're generating most of the heat in the compost. And so we don't want our compost to become so hot that the bacteria and the uh, fungus cannot live in it. We don't want it to become sterilized. Okay, so we never would cover our compost bin with plastic. uh, Covering the soil or uh, any kind of um, material that we would grow something in, like compost, covering those materials with plastic in the sun is going to solarize those materials. It's not going to necessarily speed it up, it will speed it up for a little while, but when enough sunlight is trapped enough heat is trapped under that plastic you will start killing off sterilizing your media killing off the bacteria and the fungus that need to do their job so keep your compost bin uncovered let it get natural rainfall when it needs it uh let it get natural sunlight you can do compost in the shade okay sun is not always necessary but In the shade, it will be a bit slower process. So if you want a faster compost, give it at least, just like your garden, six to eight hours of sunlight. It can have a a period in the shade, no problem. But if you give it some sunlight, it'll speed it up, have a good balance of moisture and air. That'll speed it up. And of course, really got to monitor that balance of brown litter and green litter. That balance is going to be critical. Well, Sam, I'm glad that you're interested in compost. If you have any other questions, you can always ask us. But, of course, there's plenty of resources online and wonderful books on Amazon on just this topic. Big, thick, heavy books on this topic that you can learn more about. Those are just some of the basics. Now, before we have to head on for this this week, uh, Juan, here in Cleveland, Georgia, he says, um, It's harder and harder to find sweet potato slips. Can I produce my own? What's an easy way to do so? I know exactly what you mean, Juan, because sweet potato slips used to be sold in little bundles. And of course, sweet potato slips is nothing more than a young sweet potato plant. But fewer and fewer places are producing them. Fewer and fewer places are selling them. You can produce them your own. Remember that the sweet potato we harvest is the root. It's not like a potato. A regular potato is a stem, but the sweet potato is a root. And so you can take a sweet potato from the grocery store, maybe you have some sweet potatoes that are starting to send out shoots, place them in a mason jar of water with a skewer so you can sort of hold it above the air, right? Hold it. In, in side of, Kind of half in the water, half in the air, skewer that through the sweet potato and put it in a sunny window. The kitchen window, sink window is probably a good place for it. You will see in a few weeks that the tip Make sure you're putting the tip going upwards because it is a root. We don't want to bury the tip in water. But as roots begin to develop on that root, that big tuberous root, then new shoots will come up in the air. And those will be your new stems or your slips. You can remove them from that sweet potato, plant them directly in the ground when it's much warmer than it is now. Uh, But you can sort of maintain them in little pots, uh, in little pots of soil in your windowsill until real spring shows up so sweet potatoes are wonderful the deer love the foliage so if you have deer you're gonna to have to protect them but late in the year maybe uh, as late as October you should have some glorious and beautiful sweet potatoes you can make your own slip swan. just get a sweet potato a jar of water and watch them grow Okay, gang. Well, I'm glad you sent us your questions this month. If you have any other questions as we go through March, be sure to check us out online at newSouthernGarden.com, Facebook and Instagram. And for WRWH and New Southern Garden, I'm Nathan Wilson. Hoping you stay well and grow well. See you next week.